Welcome to What Christians Should Know, how you can apply biblical principles to everyday life. Hello to everyone. Welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and welcome to What Christians Should Know, the podcast. This is our final part of episode number 2.11, The Christian and the State. In part one, we talked about what the state is and how it interacts with the church in day-to-day affairs. In part two, we spoke about civil obedience and civil disobedience. And now in part three, we're going to talk about justice. So let's get started. So in this final part of episode 2.11, I will talk about the biblical concept of justice in order to make a contemporary connection to living every day under the authority of a secular regime. What you will find is that justice in the biblical sense differs enough from justice in a modern sense that it will change how you think about, approach, and act upon injustice in society at large. Of course, the state, in making and enforcing laws, defines the contours of justice in modern society. Deuteronomy 16.20 says, Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Isaiah 6.18 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Justice is a concern that permeates the entire Bible. This concern is found, for example, in the history of Israel being liberated from Egyptian bondage. It is found in the proclamations of the prophets. It is found in the poetry and wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Jesus begins his public ministry by announcing that he is the one to fulfill the prophetic longing to liberate those who are victims of oppression. Justice is integral to God's character and his resultant plan for civil order and government. Hence, talking about justice is never just a social, political, or an economic matter. Rather, justice is primarily a theological concern. The Bible informs us that because God is just, he requires us to do justice. And looking to the end of time, the Lord will be the one to deliver final and ultimate justice. Our discussion of justice is highly relevant to the topic at hand for one simple reason. The state is the agent that can either compel people to do certain things or not to do certain things. This paradigm can produce the adverse effect of codifying injustice and promoting inequality and unfairness. In some instances, then, the state can be the chief enabler of injustice, which is contrary both to God's character and to what he demands of us. As followers of God, we Christians are therefore responsible to pursue justice in all arenas of life in the midst of a state-sanctioned framework that may encourage otherwise. The brutal fact is that injustice never happens by chance. It is the purposeful intent of those with power to deprive those without. Psalm 33 proclaims God as the one in whom the righteous can place their hope and trust. In verse 5, the psalmist writes, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. The phrase righteousness and justice form a unique and unified whole that transcends the meaning of each of the words individually in the same way that law and order carries a unified theme more comprehensive than its parts. 
I will expand on each word individually to develop a proper understanding of the couplet righteousness and justice. So righteousness comes from a Hebrew word which refers to something not only being right in theory, such as political ideals, but also being right in practice, such as honest weights and measurements. So biblical righteousness implies an oughtness or an objective standard by which everything is judged. But even more than this standard exists a sense of oughtness in the relationships between individuals. Therefore, for example, when people interact with one another, like when a father judges his children or when a judge makes a judgment on a case, there ought to be righteousness as one person relates to another. So no matter what labels people may have, like police officer or citizen, Righteousness demands and maintains an integrity in how these two human beings interact. In the example of a police officer and a citizen, the police officer and the citizen are people made in the image of God, and this identity exists before they are assigned labels by the state. Justice comes from a Hebrew word which refers to the process of litigation, a case or a cause brought before a judge, the decision of judgment, and in a broader sense, to make things right. So embedded within the phrase righteousness and justice is a strong sense of mercy, so that mercy is not distinct from justice, but intimately mixed in with it. This is a connection often lost in English, where justice and mercy are thought to be mutually exclusive. But God, who is just, loves humanity so much that through an act of grace, sent Jesus into the world. God's justice never canceled out his mercy in dealing with us. In fact, the Bible even tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment in James 2.13. So, when we consider righteousness and justice together, what we see is that righteousness is a destination. Righteousness is the marvelous city on a hill whose foundation is righteousness. Justice is the road that leads to the city, and in order to take steps along this road toward righteousness, one must walk straight in the path of justice. Entering the city gates and being labeled righteous thus also means that every step in our Christian walk has taken us on the road of justice. Seen in this way, righteousness is expressed in justice. So, justice is never an idea or theory nor is it an immaterial, abstract concept. Justice is something that followers of God actively do in pursuit of righteousness because present circumstances have not yet met the ideal standard of what ought to be. This applies not only to our own lives, but also to our neighbors in the state. It means being able to see all those dysfunctional systems that have not yet met the standard of righteousness and then actively working in justice to meet the ideal. As the victims of injustice tend to be the marginalized and often are those without a voice or power, efforts are preferentially directed toward this cohort by necessity. To clarify this point, Stephen Charles Mott writes in Political Thought the following, as it is frequently used in biblical texts, justice is a call for action more than it is a principle of evaluation. Justice as an appeal for a response means taking upon oneself the cause of those who are weak in their own defense. In Micah 6.8, the prophet Micah speaks loud and clear to us when he says, 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Of course, do justice actually means to do, as in to accomplish, to advance, to bring forth, or to execute. When God speaks through the prophet Micah and tells us what is good, clearly justice is never meant to be merely discussed around the dinner table amongst intellectuals, free thinkers, and glasses of wine. Justice is meant to be strived for in the real world with boots on the ground, actively engaged with victims of injustice and the institutions that perpetrate unfairness. If we turn back to the couplet, Righteousness and Justice, in Psalm 33.5, it becomes clear that this phrase does not portray a God who is impersonal and mechanistic in handing out sentences for wrongdoing. Rather, the care that he executes in his justice reveals his loving kindness and grace. This helps explain how the psalmist can follow up talking about God's righteousness and justice with the proclamation that the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord in the next verse. There are even other places in the Bible, like Isaiah 30:18, where God's justice is labeled as the reason for his compassion, which tends to sound odd in the ears of people thinking of justice in terms of punishment. The full text of Isaiah 30:18 says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Now, when Isaiah spoke these words, he spoke them to a covenantal community, the Israelites, because God had a vested interest in reconciling a broken relationship with his people. Of course, sin is what tainted the relationship. And yes, Isaiah was speaking to a specific community, and his message was not originally directed at the world. Still, an unchanging God who is just will always be consistent in his character, and therefore, he is just toward humanity. At no point does God become unjust, regardless of whom he is dealing with. Justice is, therefore, intended to be a universal testament of humanity, because the earth is full of the unyielding love of God, the peoples of the earth should fear and worship him, all are held accountable before him, he cares for all human beings, and he used justice as an organizing principle to order creation itself. Now, because of Christ and the new covenant with all of the elect, it is clear that in an attempt to imitate a perfectly righteous and perfectly just God, we do justice in pursuit of righteousness. Such action applies to all our relationships, family, church, community, the society at large, and the state. We act justly in pursuit of righteousness because when God's people cry out against injustice and oppression, he does not ignore them because of his steadfast love that is unyielding. God sees those who are on the margins, and this is made explicitly clear by the story of Hagar, the non-Israelite woman who was pregnant with Abraham's first son. Hagar was in a vulnerable position and was treated harshly. God intervened in her situation and gave her assurance, hope, and a promise. It is then that Hagar labels God with the first personal name given in the Bible, when she labels him 
a God who sees me in Genesis 16, 13. The point is that God never turns a blind eye to us and we ought never to turn a blind eye to injustice or those who are harmed by it. God's redeeming justice in the Old Testament is most clearly demonstrated in the book of Exodus. There, in the mass departure from Egypt, God acted on the behalf of the victims of injustice, the Israelites, and worked against the perpetrators of injustice, the Egyptians. In fact, God's justice released the captives, set free those who were oppressed, and simultaneously punished the Egyptians. This foreshadows that in the end, God's justice ensures that everything wrong will be made right. A driving force then in God's justice is not merely punishment in a legal or a retributive sense. It is to restore affairs to the way they should be. Again, justice pursues righteousness. Isaiah 5-7 says the following, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So as this parable in Isaiah 5-7 makes clear, when the Lord finds justice and righteousness, he is delighted. But when instead he finds a bloodshed and cries of distress, a huge gap exists between what is expected and what actually is. True dedication to God means being staunchly committed to righteousness and justice, and God makes it clear that he finds those who trample upon justice and pretend to worship him detestable. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and I hope what Christians should know in general has benefited you and helped you to grow your faith. But I'm taking a brief pause because I need your help. I'm asking all of my listeners to rate and review the What Christians Should Know podcast so that we can grow our audience and let others know where they can find sound Bible teaching. So if you're using an iPhone, you can rate WCSK by finding us using the podcast app. And if you're not using an iPhone, you can find WCSK through the iTunes store. So I urge everyone to please act now, rate WCSK, and let the world know why the program has empowered you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now back to our program. In the Old Testament, it was the kings, the heads of state of a theocracy, who were to be the main proponents of justice in society. By modern extension, then, leaders in the state carry the responsibility of not only maintaining justice, but promoting it. Even the secular queen of Sheba demonstrated her wisdom by proclaiming that the king had the responsibility to do justice and righteousness, as it says in 1 Kings 10.9. One king, Solomon, pleased the Lord for asking for wisdom in order to discern between good and evil and judge appropriately. Unfortunately, the Bible also tells us that an overwhelming majority of the time, those who held power in Israel's monarchy did evil and injustice was rampant. The only two kings who had exemplary ethical standards during their reigns, Josiah and Jehoshaphat, were characterized by their adherence to the law and were champions of justice. David, the man after God's own heart, administered justice and righteousness for all of his people as it says in 2 Samuel 8.15. The ideal biblical model for what state leadership manifested through kingship ought to do 
can be found in Psalm 72, which is a prayer for an anointed king that asks God to bring about his rule through the king. Today, we can use this model in our prayers for our leaders and use it as a guidebook on what leaders, that is to say the state, ought to do. Psalm 72 says the following, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness, and you are afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people, and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. In his days may the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. What this psalm makes explicit is that we ought to seek and pray for an ideal leader that clings to justice and righteousness as an organizing principle of his reign. Hence, justice is not a trait equal to others, but is the basis upon which everything else is built. The king's justice manifests as saving action that hears the cries of the helpless and is sensitive to the plight of the poor. Here, in the prophetic voices of the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that those in positions of power never ought to use their power to secure gain for themselves, so that the king's table is full while the people are starving. Rather, the paradigm is one of mutual servanthood, where the king executes justice and righteousness and is the source of well-being, while the people who serve the king recognize this as God working through him and submit to his authority. In his book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, author Christopher Wright makes a powerful claim that where such a concern for social justice comes on the scale of our human values in any given context is the measure of how much or how little we are in tune with the heart of this God, the God of the Bible. Now that I have clarified what the state is supposed to do beyond restraining evil, namely to do justice, we must also ground ourselves in reality. That is, we have to reconcile the biblical ideal with our fallen world. Realistically speaking, the best we can hope for in any ruler or leader is partial success. Still, we pray for leaders because we want them to rule as close as possible to the model of God's law. So, in the midst of injustice, the church will lend its prophetic voice whenever the state model strays from the ideal and dedicated individuals work on smaller scales to advocate for justice. One critical point I hope is now very clear is that the state is in the most advantageous position to use its power to either promote and maintain justice or to allow injustice to triumph. I say allow because evil and the injustice that follows it are only allowed to prevail when the active pursuit of good lies dormant. Truly, we are fallen creatures in a fallen creation, and without the active movement to restrain evil by the state, the default will tend toward evil. In fact, in the most abominable cases, the state will codify injustice so that doing injustice becomes legal, as it was described in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. 
So when we as Christians consider our federal, state, and local authorities, we can never remain silent or passive in the face of injustice. Nor can we ever allow ourselves to succumb to the temptation that because the state enacts a law, or because the majority favors a particular morality, that this makes it right. Our lives depend on that which is just, and God's law, all of it, is not a vain thing to us. It is our very lives. So when we live in the midst of a state that fights for justice, we exhort, encourage, and diligently support our virtuous leaders. When we live in the midst of a state that is inactive regarding justice or actively promotes injustice, we then must lend a prophetic voice and be active participants in the grander pursuit of righteousness in justice. Practically speaking, this means that dedicated servants of God do not have their sense of justice or fairness informed by Western legal standards. It means we are informed theologically about what justice is and therefore have a purposeful intent to advocate for justice, truth, and integrity. This model transcends tit-for-tat retribution and seeks to make things right by dismantling systems that allowed the initial injustice to happen in the first place. Invariably, the pursuit of righteousness in justice will entail a struggle against the state. Does this not make us as Christians, who admittedly are commanded to follow a path of civil obedience, the exact agitators, rabble-rousers, and revolutionaries that the Bible informs us not to be? How can we ever consider not obeying the law or breaking the law if we are to live in subjection to the governing authorities, as Paul wrote in Romans 13? How can honest Christians ever live with themselves if they are labeled lawbreakers? Well, the answer to all of these reasonable concerns is quite simple. God's law is perfect, but the laws of men are not. All laws are not created equal, and two types of laws exist, the just and the unjust. Just laws align with God's law. Unjust laws violate God's law. Unjust laws cooperate with evil and shun good. Unjust laws inflict injustice on a minority, while the majority who enacted the law are exempt from its mandates. As already discussed, for the Christian, unjust laws require civil disobedience. The Christian must never pursue uncivil disobedience because that would not be just. Additionally, the Christian must never simply use time as an active strategy because indeed, time marches forward but is neutral. It neither acts for good nor for evil. The Christian must strive not merely for peace, characterized by the absence of tension, but for peace characterized by the overwhelming presence of cooperative good. Truly, civil disobedience is a strategy based on hope, and Christ is the only legitimate, ultimate source of our hope. So in putting everything we have learned together into meaningful, practical, and everyday expression, what quickly becomes clear is that especially in 21st century America, sound biblical principles can often get mixed up in ideology that is either primarily political or serves some type of agenda that is exclusively favorable to the state. We, as Christians, realize that the state is ordained by God, but the state is only a temporary institution to transiently serve God's eternal purposes. Without a doubt, as time moves forward and regimes change, God's word remains constant. 
at the peak of God's revelation to us in the Old Testament, exist the Ten Commandments. It is worth briefly discussing them here to draw some modern lessons on how we interact with the state. Invariably, the sacrosanct principles in the Ten Commandments will certainly sharpen the lens of scrutiny that we use to view the state and our activities under its authority and the culture at large. So the Ten Commandments are the foundational principles of God's covenant with his people, and the rest of the Mosaic Law is based upon these ten core principles. Of course, we understand the law is not null and void. Christ never nullified the law, but rather he fulfilled it. Accordingly, we realize that we worship God alone and not any other ideology that subordinates God's word to second place. A pressing example would be uplifting the power of constitutional amendments over the authority of the Ten Commandments. We realize that worshiping false gods like wealth, statism, or nativism leads to abhorrent evil, and we should be quite alarmed that idols of false gods have literally already been built in at least one major American city, that is, Manhattan, New York, and for links to the relevant articles, please see the written transcript on WCSK.org. We realize that the Sabbath is a holy day sacred unto the Lord, and how we use this time is biblically informed, not motivated by popular recreation. We realize that the family, headed by a male father and a female mother, is the basic social unit of any human society. Therefore, any paradigm that attempts to terrorize the family, like undermining the authority of parents over their children, placing wedges that separate fathers from families, quote-unquote empowering women or incentivizing them to raise children by themselves, the destruction of human life, or promoting sexual norms that discourage monogamy and marriage. These all resemble more of a pagan ethos than a godly one. We realize that perverting the truth or using the state to unjustly steal from others destroys genuine human liberty. We realize that in the Bible, there is a triad of vulnerability, orphans, widows, and aliens, for whom God has a preferential option. This cohort is not more deserving than the rest. Rather, this cohort represents those who are the victims of chronic injustice, and therefore the Lord intervenes on their behalf. As it says in Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 to 19, God executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. We as Christians therefore adopt the same posture. We seek justice and show love to the triad of orphans, widows, and aliens, just as we, because of sin, were undeserving of the grace of God. It is God who took the initiative to seek and save us, those who were lost, even though we deserved nothing. We were fatherless without a savior and were looking at the outer wall of the heavenly domain yearning for redemption. Then the Holy Spirit regenerated us, enabled us to scale the wall and cross the bridge, who is Jesus, in order to be reconciled back to the Father. We also realize that perpetual violence is the trademark of any society that is polluted with injustice. In fact, violence is often the end result of a state that seeks to maintain and nurture systems of injustice 
so that few may benefit at the expense of many. We realize that in the end, it was never our calling as human beings to redeem the world. Neither is this the calling of the church or the state. Only God can bring redemption. In our Christian walk, we do not aim to create a utopia, nor can we seek to make right everything in society that is crooked. Instead, we begin with easy, tiny steps and focus on those troubles that are actionable and readily accessible to us. We are confident knowing that change happens and movements are given life when nameless people do simple small things. Furthermore, as members of the community of faith, one of the deadliest things we can do is try to stand alone. Instead, we lean on one another, inspired to know that even minute changes enacted by numerous people will achieve more than one person doing something really big on his or her own. Ultimately, only those who want to change the world will succeed, and only those who want to change the world will act in pursuit of that change. As Christians living in the midst of the state, we therefore want the glory of God to be made manifest. Therefore, we take action in pursuit of righteousness. Step by step, we move forward, placing our ultimate trust and hope in Christ, who inspires us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord. That will conclude this episode. Take care, God bless, and see everyone next time. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including written transcripts, a bookstore, and online Bible study, please visit wcsk.org.